All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the 16th day of October, 2018. I do like to remind you that I am the editor of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Uh, You can subscribe to that letter by going to miningstocks.com miningstocks.com. You can also call our office here in New York during the regular business hours, 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. We also like to put in a plug for Chen Lin, uh, an excellent letter. His focus is uh, to a great extent on the biotech sector uh, where he's uh, made his subscribers a lot of money. He also focuses some on gold mining shares as well and some other sectors, but uh, those are the ones where he's done extremely well. ChenPix.com, ChenPix.com, uh, to uh, sign up for Chen's letter. And we also like to always mention now Michael Oliver's letter. He has a special letter uh, for gold and silver, focused on gold and silver. It's uh, a very moderately priced product, and uh, it's OliverMSA.com. Do want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. We also want to encourage you to continue sending along your questions, criticisms, comments, whatever they be, to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com, questions the number four, taylor at gmail.com. And we always like to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our uh, sponsors this week are Genesis Metals Corp., Great Bear Resources, Novo Resources, Sandstorm Gold uh, Limited, Triumph Gold, Gold Mining, Inc. and Uranium Energy. Well, I've titled today's show, Guaranteed, The Swiss Franc Will Collapse. Keith Weiner, Brian Groves, and Michael Oliver are return guests this week. One of the strongest fiat currencies over many decades has been the Swiss Franc, but it has been so strong, in fact, that the Swiss National Bank orchestrated significantly negative interest rates to weaken it. Now, during the second half of today's show, Keith Weiner will explain how permanent gold backwardation measured in Swiss francs guarantees the francs collapse and what that may mean uh, for, at least I hope we'll get this out of him, what that might mean for the uh, post-Bretton Woods dollar-based system as a whole. Keith will explain the death spiral dynamics for the Swiss franc and I think it's uh, something, a, a, different, a different view of things. And uh, it's, we, we like to have people on the show that provide something a little different, uh, but yet is uh, legitimate and soundly based. And I think you'll find, if you think through Keith's arguments, uh, that, um, that's, uh, that, that they are very soundly based. 
Any student of history, of course, knows that all fiat currencies eventually enter the dustbin of history. Such will also be the fate of the U.S. dollar, and for sure, there is growing evidence that the days of the dollar's hegemony are numbered as well, uh, such that only true money, namely gold, ends up as a monetary survivor. I hope to explore, as I say, ways that you may profit from Keith's insights uh, into the unique understanding of the dynamics leading to the pathology of Swiss franc and other fiat currencies. Brian Groves, the CEO of Genesis Metals, will be with me after our first commercial break to give us an update of that company's exploration plans on a Chevier project in Quebec. And that fits the uh, geological model, at least, of Agneagle Eagle's Goldex project. Uh, given the recent weakness in the shares, uh, Genesis selling under 10 cents in U.S. money which in my view makes it a very attractive speculation for investors seeking to profit from exploration stories. Um, As a shareholder of Genesis, I'm certainly looking forward to what Brian has to say. Well, I'm equally interested in what Michael Oliver has to say. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. Always good to have you with me. And uh, I must must mention to my listeners, uh, I don't know how many people that listen to you every week, Michael, have been to your website. Uh, but I went there and realized that I had never really focused on a couple of excellent videos that explain so much about who you are and how uh, and your methodology for you know what lies underneath this excellent product that you provide. Uh, so I want to tell my listeners go to go to uh, OliverMSA.com to to see my is it the first vision the first video uh, real vision video talks of Michael explains his background, how he evolved into the financial world and how he is, uh, came about to do what he, what is, uh, what, what he has been doing, uh, with his, uh, technical analysis, very unique proprietary analysis, uh, which again, I say, I like to have unique people on the show and unique visions. And that's why uh, we have Michael, uh, all the time, but then there's another, uh, so you'll, you'll get both, both Michael's background as well as his methodology, which I think is very valuable. And if you if you look at that, you'll understand why uh, he's a favorite guest of, of this show uh, and why he's the most frequent guest on this show. Well, Michael, uh, gold and gold shares, we're looking at seeing a little bit of strength in gold since we spoke last Tuesday. How's it looking to you, gold and, and the gold shares in general? Well, our intermediate trend uh, technicals of, of gold, silver, and uh, GDX, the, the main gold mining ETF, uh, have turned to initial breakout levels, and they did it staggered. Gold led the way, actually, about early September, and uh, not a lot of upside happened uh, until last week. We got a good bolt on the upside last week out of a congestion zone. Gold's now, you know, we traded October gold over 1230 today. Uh, the August low was twelve uh, was eleven sixty two, so I mean it's had a, had a nice move off the low. We think this rally has resistance, and when I say resistance, I don't mean anything permanent. Has there's a resistance zone from about twelve fifty on to twelve seventy five, let's say. Somewhere in that zone, I would expect this rally to to reach, and then have have to have to do a little fighting, uh, you know, a trading sell off, not back to the lows, but just kind of an eruption. Uh, when I go to um, silver, and we report this in our, in our new report, it's called the Gold, Silver, and Mining Report, and it's two ninety nine a year, which is, is pretty cheap uh, compared to our other products. But we focus on, on that, that narrow 
area, not, not base metals, it's just precious metals and the miners. Um, and, but uh, GDX is interesting now. It's, it's gotten quite a bolt of strength last week. It's traded over 20 after being down in the 17s. Now, contrast that to the bear low of 2016, which is $12.40, by the way. Mm. Mm. So uh, it, it's traded over 20 last week and again, again this week. And there's some numbers not far ahead. I, I don't want to be too specific because our subscribers pay for that information. Sure, absolutely. But not too far above the recent rally high. If you can close a week out, uh, you should unleash that guy uh, you know, pretty good. Uh, and, and I would say at that point, uh, the low's in place. And I think what, in hindsight, we're going to look back and, and look at GDX and say, well, it was a major washout low at $12.40 in 2016, very early. Exploded out of that hole, much bigger than gold did on a percent basis. Came all the way back down after a laborious process of decline, mostly sideways, all there in 2017, and tapped down to the $17 area, uh, not touching 17 but under 18 And now it's, it's moving back up again. I think we're going to look back and say, ah, uh, that was just a secondary low. It was a, it was a broad base spanning 2016, 17, and 18, you know, with the rally in between. And it was really just one big, sizable base. And we just saw the secondary low, the, you know, the, let's, let's, let's build two legs on this guy, not just one. You know, <laughs> okay, now understand what I mean. So he can stand up. And I, I think we'll look back and say, gosh, what an opportunity that was. Uh, yeah. After all, you know, a gold miner can go to zero, but gold miners can't go to zero because they're commodity related. Certain right. industries can go out of business because you know, you know, people that make horseshoes, you know, they, they went out of yeah. business. Uh, yeah. But but in the technology, there's certain things that can go out of business because they're replaced by new technology. But gold miners are just—it's it's just just as basic as gold itself. It cannot go to zero, and I think twelve bucks on GDX in 2016 and. 17 and change this year is about as close to theoretical zero as you can get. Mm-hmm. And you consider that in 2011, that same ETF was at $66. Yeah. Well, Michael, I can certainly agree. I can certainly agree with you that a, uh, that a, com- uh, that a basket of major mining companies uh, like in the GDX will not go to zero, the composite, but I, I can't quite say that about some of the junior exploration companies. They can go to zero. I just put that yeah. in as a caveat because we promote a lot of junior mining companies. We've got one coming up next. Uh, the upside is tremendous for these little exploration companies, but uh, they they can go. They can and once in a yeah. while do go to the zero. Individual so. ones, yes, yeah, the individual ones, yes. Yeah, the individual ones, exactly. Well, well uh, Michael, with just a couple of minutes left here, what about the equity market? Because today we're seeing the, uh, the equities, U.S. equities, at least – a little earlier in the day, anyway, when I checked, the Dow was up over 400 points. Uh, what do you make of it? I think we've topped, um, and I think the downside will be, there's more downside left in this particular move, and I suspect in the next four weeks you'll see it. Uh, I'm not at all confident that the lows of the year were seen in February on the S&P that was 2550. Uh, I, I I'm biased, uh, technically biased, that those will come out, and then you will get a rally that puts you back up by, let's say, late in the year, uh, in the 2700s, you know, is where we've been this week, uh, which is to say, you know, maybe even an up year, because I think we closed last year in the high 2600s. So you could net out a slight up year, but end up closing in the middle of the yearly range, mm-hmm. but it'd be a topping year, you know, mm-hmm. where you, you arm wrestle, it's an arm wrestling year. 
right. but a topping process. But right now, on a, on a shorter term basis, meaning in the next three or four weeks, I, I think I don't trust this rally. Period. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't trust it much beyond where we are right now. Right. Well, I'm not surprised that, that you say that. With a minute left, the long bond, uh, I mean, is this thing history now? Are we in a bear market, a long-term well, bear no, market? We've been in a bear, we call bear market at 166 price level of the T-bond futures back in October of 2016 and added with a major sell at 148 in January of this year. Right now it's trading at 138. We think mm-hmm. it's going into the 120s which is, say, four and a quarter percent interest rate on the 30-year bond. But I'll tell you what, right now, uh, our view is on a short-term basis. You could get an upside spike uh, mm-hmm. because if the stocks roll over from here one more time and it exhibit the kind of emotion they have over the last few weeks, which is horrific downside, yeah. uh, this rally doesn't compare to the downside. Um, the T-bonds could spike up. In fact, today's close on T-bonds is, is kind of looking pretty good uh, in terms uh-huh. of perhaps uh, sparking that spike. Now, mm-hmm. why would bonds spike? Like the safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, well, how they get that occasionally when the stocks go down too much. Mm-hmm. We've had a, a rebound in bonds of a good couple points here recently. Why? Stocks went down hard. Mm-hmm. And if mm-hmm. stocks are ready to roll over again and have another uh, downside like they had last week, then maybe bonds are ready to throw a spike. So yeah, as long don't as let the, that confuse you. Don't let that confuse you. That doesn't end the bear market in bonds. Right. They're going of course. Lower. Of course. Yes, 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 indeed. Well, we did see a little bit of a run to uh, safety in gold, too, this week, too. And I guess Mm -hmm. as long as people have confidence in the paper market system, the fiat money system, uh, the game can go on, as you say, uh, stocks up, bonds down, and vice versa sometimes. So, all right. Well, Michael, we'll we'll have to let it go at that. Uh, Again, it's OliverMSA.com, folks. Go there, check it out. Uh, Learn to know more about Michael and consider signing up for his Excellent letter now, the new service that he's providing for gold and silver-related investments. So uh, thank you very much, Michael, for being with us, and we'll look to do it again next week. All right. Well, folks, uh, we do have to go to a break now, but don't go away. Brian Groves, the CEO of Genesis Metals, will be with us to talk about uh, that company's project in Quebec. Um, Company's um, share price is down, but nothing's changed in the ground, if anything, We know more about what's there now than we did a year ago, so uh, don't go away. We'll be right back to hear what Brian Gross has to say. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Novo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Turning hard times into good times is brought to you in part by Sandstorm Gold Royalties. Sandstorm Gold Royalties is a different kind of gold company. They purchase royalties on select mining operations and receive a percentage of the revenue in return. Sandstorm now has a portfolio of 185 gold royalties around the world. See how gold royalties differ from other gold mining investments at sandstormgold.com. That's sandstormgold.com. Sandstorm Gold Royalties trades on the TSX as SSL and the NYSE as SAND. 
You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me once again Brian Groves. He's the CEO and a director of Genesis Metals Corp. He has a long history uh, as an exploration geologist working for major companies like Amex Minerals, Naranda, Placer Dome back in the day. And uh, he's been working with juniors in his more recent years uh, as an exploration geologist and, again, heading up Genesis Metals Corp. It trades in Toronto under the symbol GIS. You can buy it down here in the States, as I have, for my retirement account. It's GGISF, GGISF, 86.8 million shares outstanding. Trading today at uh, a mere $0.08 cents in U.S. money, thereabouts, giving it a market cap in U.S. money of around $7 million. Thanks for joining me again, Brian. Thanks, Jay, for having me again. Just really uh, good to have you with me. Um, it's been a tough market, and we'll get into that. Uh, but uh, you have, I mean, one one of the, the great things about this market, these exploration markets, is that, yes, they, they're they volatile. The share prices go down, they go up, they go down, they go up. But the, nothing changes so much in the ground. The, the metals were laid down there millions of years ago, and they don't go anywhere. But the cycles come back around again, and then you have a chance to uh, for investors, if the timing is right, to make a lot of money in this sector. Uh, talk to us a little bit about, for the benefit of people that might not be at all familiar with your Chevier project in near Shibugamu, uh, Quebec, that's a project located along the Fan Kemp uh, de- deformation zone that is viewed as a major conduit for uh, gold mineralization in this area. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that, and I, I believe there's some other activity right there uh, just south of you uh, that is very positive. That, that's right, Jay. Yeah, the uh, Chevrolet project is a fairly large land position. It's about 120 square kilometers. Um, wow. As you mentioned, it, it straddles the Fan Camp deformation zone, which which seems to be one of the major structural breaks that we see in eastern Canada, much like the uh, the Cadillac break in the Val d'Or area, the Porcupine Dester in the Timmins Camp, and so on. Uh, so it seems to be the major conduit that controls the location of gold deposits. Um, interestingly, uh, Shibugamu, which is a town of about 5,000, and it's about an, an hour, uh, hour and a quarter's flight north from Montreal, so good access. It traditionally, was a very copper-rich production area, uh, and the gold um, overprint was seen to the south of the uh, the city, and that's where Chevrier is located. Uh, there has been sort of recent gold production uh, from uh, gold mines uh, south of the town, um, and more recently, I am Gold uh, optioned a property called the Monster Lake property, which sits around about uh, 15 kilometers or 10 miles to the southwest of uh, Chevrier, and uh, they're currently earning in uh, to the level of about 70% uh, from the junior uh, company that owns the project. Uh, they put out an initial resource. It's, it's around about 500,000 ounces uh, of quite high grade, uh, you know, 11 grams plus. Wow. Uh, so it's a very, very uh, compelling start. And uh, again, it, it does speak to the uh, to the potential in the camp. It's uh, 
the Fancamp defamation zone is probably being regarded as the poor uh, cousin uh, of some of the big Eastern Canadian gold mining areas because of that uh, copper overprint. Um, but we, we see potential on Chevrolet to, to host a significant deposit, and most of our work has been aimed at doing that. Um, so the, the, just a quick history, the company Genesis was formed uh, from a predecessor, uh, Toronto-listed junior company that merged with um, a company based in Toronto that had the uh, Chevrolet project. Uh, so Genesis has only existed since about mid-2016. Uh, we were fortunate enough to raise um, 3 to $4 million last year and uh, completed about 10,000 meters of drilling on the Chevrolet main zone, uh, and that was the site of an historic resource going back uh, several years. And, of course, uh, with the TSX rules, we need to uh, take our time, uh, you know, validate and redrill holes to ensure that the older data can still be used in, a, in an updated resource. Uh, and that is what we're working towards. Our, our schedule is still on track. We're looking at a uh, November release for the resource estimate. And, uh, you know, we're, we're quite confident that we'll be able to uh, uh, deliver an updated resource that, uh, that I will hopefully uh, be uh, appreciated by the market at a time when the gold price seems to be showing some life again. And uh, we have seen that in our stock. Uh, we From a low of about uh, $0.07 cents Canadian, we, we have come back up to about 10, 9.5 to $0.10. Cents. And uh, I, I think people are starting to recognize potentially the, the undervalued nature of, um, of Genesis. Yeah, I see a bit of an uptick from your share price, even even at its current level. So I know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I have to ask you. Um, so you, 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 one of the things that really sort of excited me about your story was when you talked about it uh, as an analog to the Goldex project, which is a very profitable mine by Agni Legal. But that runs very deep, I believe. Given the fact that right now it's it's not the easiest time uh, to raise money and to put holes in the ground. Uh, you're trying to conserve your capital as much as possible, but I understand you have a lot of uh, a lot of potential near surface. And I saw some, I think, 11 target areas that you've uh, got on uh, you've got mapped on the Chevier project that you that you have your eyes on. Are those near surface targets? Yeah, most of those targets. That's correct, Jay. Most of those targets were identified by uh, previous geological mapping by the government of Quebec, and uh, they identified quartz veins and outcrop. I think one of the most telling aspects about the main zone at Chevrier is the fact that it does come to surface, and you can actually stand on the outcrop and see uh, the alteration package as well as uh, you occasionally may see visible gold, but it's not that common. But it's, it's, a, it's a rare event to be able to see that. So that speaks to the relatively shallow nature of the deposit. Having mm-hmm. said that, um, we are looking in the resource estimate, uh, as, as you're aware, we, you know, with the current requirements from uh, National Instrument 43101, we have to provide reasonable economic assumptions around that resource in terms mm-hmm. of its development. So we're, we're looking at a two-staged approach, potentially an open pit as the starter and then an underground development to capture the, um, the deeper mineralization. Um, so while the mineralization is shallow, uh, it, uh, it is typical of most of the uh, gold, big gold systems in eastern Canada in that the, the depth potential and the deep-seated nature of the intrusions, uh, sorry, of the fluid 
flow along the shear zones has, have quite significant depth, uh, depth potential as well. So we are keeping that in mind, and hence uh, we are looking at the Goldex model, uh, which is Agnico Eagle's uh, deposit in Valdor. It, uh, it's uh, a bulk underground mining uh, situation, uh, and they're using a cutoff grade, which is incredibly low. I think it's around about 0.4 to 0.5 grams. Um, they're the sorts of numbers we typically see for open pits, but not for underground. Right. But it's, it works simply because you have large intervals of lower-grade mineralization, which makes, uh, makes it amenable to bulk underground mining, and hence the unit cost for mining and extraction is, is kept to a minimum. So we see that as, as a potential development scenario for the deeper portion of uh, the main zone. Um, and having said all that, that takes nothing away from the potential on the rest of the property. As is typical with so many properties or projects, people focus in where the initial gold, hole, uh, gold discovery is, and, and they tend to ignore the rest of the project. So we, we have spent a lot of time, and we continue to compile new data, government uh, regional data that have been released recently, uh, in terms of uh, looking at the complete potential on the property. Um, I might just also add that one interesting aspect is that uh, the location of the Monster Lake project is actually about two kilometers, uh, just over um, a mile, 1.5 miles away, off to the west from the, fan, the, the immediate trace of the Fan Camp deformation zone. Mm -hmm. So that uh, is suggestive of either, uh, you know, uh, parallel structures running um, parallel to the Fan Camp or cross-cutting structures. So we are actually utilizing that information to uh, refine targeting for um, additional prospective areas on the on uh, Chevrolet as well. Mm -hmm. So if I understand what you've done is you've, you've been going back over a lot of uh, data that was compiled earlier, uh, and you've been doing all kinds of, I guess, surface geological work, uh, lower cost work in this environment that will help you establish future drill targets. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's it's an interesting situation, Jay. Even though this is viewed as a mature, relatively mature exploration area, um, the you know the the reason that geologists tend to go into these areas is that logging companies go in first and <laughs> cut down trees and push in roads, um, and sometimes that basic infrastructure of pushing in a you know a gravel road uh, to access the, uh, the the trees opens up areas. It exposes outcrop, and we've actually seen that on our project area. Uh, where some recent logging has exposed uh, some uh, some shear zones that we did not know about and do not appear on government maps. So it's um, still the basic, you know, boots on the ground, um, looking at the rocks that still sometimes generates significant opportunities, and that's that's what we're doing. These activities are low cost, but they potentially have, you know, very significant um, upside potential in identifying new targets on the property. Yeah, it's certainly not the kind of things that move markets necessarily. No, but uh, <laughs> but but they're very very important, and and uh, very wisely you're preserving the treasury as best you can. Uh, but I would hope, and uh, you know, so your your uh, your resource estimate or your new resource number, your forty three one one resource will be coming out sometime in November. I understand that would be that's right a potential yeah, that's driver. Great. That's right. Uh, our best uh, estimate, Jay, I'll be meeting with the uh, the resource estimation group uh, later this month. 
So the best estimate I could provide would be late November um, at this stage, but we'll certainly deliver as we promised, which was, uh, you know, we made the, the promise, I think, about six months ago that it would be Q4. Uh, so we're targeting the end of November to uh, certainly it won't slip beyond that uh, into the new year, that's for sure. Brian, I believe you have another property that I don't suppose you're doing too much with right now, but the October Gold property in, in Ontario, is that another one that's, uh, that, that you hold? Yes, it, it, that's correct. Uh, we've uh, we've had that. That's it's one of the original projects from the predecessor company that uh, that, that became Genesis. Um, it's a very very large land position. It's approximately two hundred square kilometers, mm. and it's uh, located in a very very uh, relatively new exploration area in Ontario, uh, south of Timmins. Uh, it's it's close to um, uh, you know significant new discoveries. Gold Corp is is working at one end and. And uh, I am gold is working at the other, so we're you know along the same defamation corridor as some fairly significant uh, players in the gold space. Uh, again, with uh, with access to capital being somewhat uh, difficult, we're optimizing our chances by staying focused on Chevrolet for the moment. Sure. Um, you know, with better times hopefully around the corner, we'll start deploying some capital um, on October Gold to to advance it and potentially look at ways and means of of uh, you know fully establishing the potential on that property. All right, very good. Well, we'll have to leave it go at that, Brian, because we are out of time. I want to thank you so much for bringing this. Uh, update to our listeners. Uh, I certainly, as a shareholder, looking forward to your uh, to your resource numbers coming out within uh, about a month or so. So thank you very much for being with us. Uh, we'll thank look you to it again sometime in the future. Well, folks, uh, don't go away. Keith Weiner will be here right after the commercial break to discuss why the Swiss franc of all fiat currencies in the world is in a death spiral. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Keith Weiner. Triumph Gold holds a 100% interest in the district-scale Free Gold Mountain Gold Copper Project in Yukon with a government-maintained road accessing their 200-square-kilometer property. The 2018 drill program has resulted in exciting discoveries to date, hitting the richest intersection ever in a porphyry system in Yukon. The company is well-funded and has a large institutional holding, including Gold Corp and Zijin Mining. Triumph trades on the TSX Venture under the symbol TIG and the OTC markets TIGCF. The website is triumphgoldcorp.com. Gold Mining Inc., ticker symbol GOLD on the TSX and GLDLF on the OTC is the biggest bet for gold investors and legendary investors like Doug Casey, Rick Rule, and Marin Katusa, who put millions of dollars into backing the company, along with institutional investors. The insiders own over 20%. Gold mining has strong cash and no debt. It's one of the top 1% of gold companies that has over 20 million ounces of gold resources. Visit goldmining.com. listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions for taylor at gmail.com that's questions 
the number four, Taylor, at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Keith Weiner. Keith is the CEO and a founder, uh, the founder, actually, of Monetary Metals. That's a leading authority in the areas of gold, money, and credit. Uh, and he's made many other important contributions to the development of trading techniques founded upon the analysis of bid-ask spreads. And he is a founder of Diamondware, a software company sold to Nortel in 2008. And he is currently uh, he currently serves as president of the Gold Standard Institute USA. He, he earned his doctorate uh, from the New Austrian School of Economics. Welcome, Keith. It's good to have you back again. Thanks for having me, Jay. You know, Keith, I want to talk to you today about an article uh, that you just wrote for 7th, titled The Toxic Stew, uh, and I've actually titled today's show, Guaranteed the Swiss Franc Will Collapse. Uh, I want to... um I titled I titled the show of that because of a very I thought it was a very really interesting article uh, the toxic stew you um, I'd like to back up a little bit for the sake of listeners who may not remember what took place but I believe it was back around 2015 wasn't it when the Swiss franc started to gain so much strength vis-a-vis other fiat currencies is that right so the at that time the um, Swiss National Bank had a peg on the Swiss franc and so what was the price wasn't changing but what was happening was the pressure was mounting pushing against that break, uh, against that peg. And then it, it finally snapped in uh, January of 2015. Now, what's remarkable about it is people are obviously very familiar with Banana Republic that try to say that, you know, our peso is going to be, you know, two to one to the dollar. Mm-hmm. And then when the market decides that they don't really believe their credibility anymore, they start selling pesos, which obliges that um, central bank to um, buy the pesos and sell dollars. And everybody understands that's a very short-lived process because then they run out of dollars. Yeah. And as soon as they run out of dollars, then they can't maintain a peck anymore. The Swiss National Bank was doing the opposite, right? They were trying to keep their currency from going up. Mm-hmm. Not down. It wasn't a banana republic of Switzerland. And so, so they said um, in uh, mid to late December, it was like less than a month before the peg actually snapped, the uh, Swiss National Bank president, Thomas Jordan, said, we're going to put unlimited resources. We will beat the market. Um, we can maintain the peg. Mm-hmm. And you would think, okay, well, all they have to do is print francs, right? And and they can do that in, to infinity. Mm-hmm. And so there'd be no problem keeping the, the Swiss franc down. Uh-huh. They wanted they wanted to keep it at uh, they wanted to keep the euro measured in francs at one point two francs. Yep. Um, and so people kept selling the euro to buy francs, so that was pushing it up. And so um, eventually, the Swiss National Bank hit what what had to be their stop loss order um, and got overrun and then the peg snapped and the euro briefly spiked down to I want to say it was zero point eight nine. Wow. Something like that. It was, it was quite a move. 25, 25, 30% move, 30, yeah. 30, something like that, in, in a matter of seconds. <laughs> um, which was something like six percent of Swiss GDP was lost <laughs> in that, you know, three second period yeah. you know, over this move. And so it was it was a remarkable uh, uh, move and that was January of uh, 2015. Mm-hmm. So I mean, so in fact, the opposite happened of what was supposed to happen. I mean, you would think if they could print enough Swiss francs, they could, you know, they could hold it at that level. Uh, you would think that um, probably it would have a, a stimulative effect. I mean, this is Keynesian thinking, I guess. It would have a stimulative effect on the economy, would drive interest rates up. But in fact, the opposite happened, right? Sure. So everybody assumes they're printing. And so, you know, you're printing more money, quantity theory of money says the more you print, 
where your currency is going to go down, which drives prices up, mm-hmm. stimulates the GDP, mm-hmm. uh, interest rates have to rise because of inflation expectations. That's all the mainstream theory. Um, and by mainstream, I mean, really mean the, the Keynesians believe that, or a version of that, the monetarists believe a version of that, mm-hmm. and the Austrians, the Austrians largely believe a version of that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it turned out all to be wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and the first thing you have to understand is it's not printing, it's borrowing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I'm alone against the entire universe of economics in saying it's not printing, it's borrowing. Mm-hmm. And I will say that, I will get on the rooftops and bellow at the top of my lungs until either I run out of breath or until the world you know, hears that. It's borrowing. Mm-hmm. The Swiss National Bank is borrowing to sell the funds to buy euro-denominated assets. I assume that would largely be German funds, mm-hmm. you know, the German bond. But maybe they bought Spanish and Italian, I don't know whatever else they bought. But um, they were borrowing. And so now you have a currency mismatch. You short the franc and long the euro. And if the euro goes down and the franc goes up, the thing you're short is going up. The thing you are long is going down. Mm-hmm. That spells losses. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if you're the portfolio manager of a hedge fund and you're doing a pair trade, it's an arbitrage short one thing, long another, and the thing you're short is wanting to rise violently, and the thing you're buying hand over fist is falling, you've got to get to that point. I mean, well, if you don't get to that point, you're going to be bankrupted. Um, or you get to that point where you say, Uncle, you throw your arms up, I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. And then they let the peg, you know, snap, and um, that uh, uh, caused a lot of pain. Because you know, so, so people look at this and say, well, why would they care to keep the front down? Mm-hmm. And so the the mainstream answer, and again by mainstream I mean all the major economic schools, right, would have a version of this that well, all the Swiss exporters are hoping to gain an advantage by having a cheaper currency, whether you're Nestle. Whether you're um, Rolex, mm-hmm. I guess Rolex. I don't know. I don't know if Rolex is owned by Swatch Group, but that's the big Swiss so watch company. Whether it's Hibagagi, the drug company. Whether it's uh, I'm trying to think of the other. Yeah, you know, the point is the same idea that uh, keep the currency low so you can export more. Yeah. Uh, right, but I, I'm sure I'm sure those companies were lobbying. But there's a much more important reason why everybody in Switzerland care about the currency being down, and that is. The banks. Mm-hmm. So Switzerland's a relatively small economy with a very, very large, outsized banking sector. Sure. And so all those banking deposits can flooding into a small country. There is no investment opportunity in Switzerland for all that capital that's rushing into the Swiss mm-hmm. banks. Mm-hmm. Now the the, the the deposits are Swiss francs, but the investment opportunity is going to be euro or maybe even Hungarian foreign. Um, whatever else outside of Switzerland. Mm-hmm. So again, if you're that bank, you're putting on this trade where you're short France, long something else, mm-hmm. the banks are probably saying to the Swiss National Bank, hey, cover us. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to be insolvent, right? I mean, if the euro keeps falling and the France keeps going up, we're going to be insolvent. Yeah. So that's what was at stake. And, and sure, Nestle and the other exporters were probably lobbying, but I don't think that was, I think that was secondary importance to the, mm-hmm. to the banking system. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, I think you you made a point. It's uh, a point that's, I guess, even the Austrians don't quite get. Uh, as I as I was listening to you, the idea that it's not the Weimar Republic where you're literally printing money and showering it from helicopters, is it? You you are borrowing. It's debt. So. I like to say that debt is the raw material from which money is created in our fiat system. Would you agree with that? I, I don't because I make a particular distinction between money and, and credit. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just like to use a very simple example going back to the 19th century 
when we had the classical gold standard. And that is you could bring a $20 bill to a bank and wordlessly, I don't think you even had to speak, push mm-hmm. that across the teller, across the counter mm-hmm. to the teller and the teller would push back uh, a coin made of approximately one ounce of gold. Mm-hmm. If, the, if the word for the paper is money, Mm-hmm. What is the word for the gold coin that comes back to you? Mm-hmm. And of course, in those days, the bank deposit was created by, uh, or the, the twenty dollar deposit was created by by bringing the gold to the bank in the first place. So you deposited money in the bank. That was just nothing more than uh, the note or the promissory note that says we'll give you your money back. Mm-hmm. And so today we've changed the definition of money. Now it just means medium of exchange, um, you know, and so forth. But I think the money is the gold. Um, you know, for two reasons, which is one, if, if the money was the paper, then what's the word for the gold? And I think that sort of shows the contradiction. Mm-hmm. But number two, there's a big difference between um, the, the physical commodity, whether it's gold or whether it's salt or whether it's cattle, versus the paper. And that is, that's a physical object that exists. Mm-hmm. The, pa- the paper, if you have a dollar, you don't actually have a thing. You have a relationship of owing that someone else owes you. Mm-hmm. Right, and if you have if you have a gold, not only gold does not no one else owes you, but you have a physical thing, you can take it and do whatever you want with it. But if somebody else owes you, it's now subject to their you know terms and conditions that they're going to honor or not. Mm-hmm. I think of it as an asset based money as opposed to a liability based. You don't call it money, but medium of exchange, I guess, is what we're right. at. Right. Okay. Well, I'd like you to help us understand a little bit how the dynamics you were talking about the Swiss national banks activities in pushing rates down into negative territory, how that is pathological and how that will lead to the destruction ultimately of the Swiss uh, of the Swiss franc. So I think it happened as a byproduct of them trying to maintain this peg. They were frantically borrowing as many francs as they could and then, um, you know, trading them to get euro-denominated asset. And so what they did is they, you know, in a market, in a free market, um, money or credit is not created needlessly. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's, a, there's a market signal, which is just profitable to do so. A central bank can out, act outside the profit motive, which is, which is touted as, as a good thing, but it's actually a bad thing. So they mm-hmm. created all of these francs for which there was no productive purpose, mm-hmm. dumping them into the market. Now, the theory is increased quantity money, increased you know, buying and bidding mm-hmm. on prices and so forth. But what actually happens, suppose you run a pension fund mm-hmm. and um, you own a, a euro-denominated bond, you own a German bond. And then um, the First National Bank raises the bid price, and so you sell the bond because you're like, they're, they're paying too much. I'm going to dump it on their on their bid. You know, you, so so you bought this thing at um, I don't know, say a thousand francs, and now they're paying you a thousand and one francs mm-hmm. to buy it off of you. Mm-hmm. You're not going to go and spend a thousand and one francs or even one franc on consumer goods. I mean, you're running a pension fund. Right. That would be embezzlement, right? So now you have a thousand and one francs. You have a capital gain. That's nice. And you're going to enjoy that for about five minutes until you realize, oh crap, I have to buy something else. With, and what are you going to buy? One what are you going to buy? So you go, right, so you go into the franc asset market and you find that all of your peers have the same exact dilemma that the First National Bank has bought all these yielding assets off of them. Mm-hmm. And so you find a relatively um, depleted asset market and more and more uh, bidders are coming with more and more cash, for franc cash. To, to buy on them, and so what you find is negative interest rates. That mm-hmm. is, if, if you buy if you buy a bond that is going to return a thousand francs to you in five years' time, or even in, in 2015, even in 10 years' time, or 20 years' time, mm-hmm. it's going to return a thousand francs. You have to pay more than a thousand francs on a zero coupon bond to get a thousand francs back in the future. <laughs> Stupid. 
And so what that's basically saying is, there's several perverse things about it. One is it's saying they've created so many useless fronts, there's literally nothing productive to do with them. Mm-hmm. Number two, and this is, this is why I call for the destruction of, of the currency, or not, I call it, I diagnose it mm-hmm. as a cancer, mm-hmm. is that if it's, so in a normal world, if you, if you run an enterprise that loses, that destroys wealth, mm-hmm. produces less than it consumes, you should be out of business the sooner the better mm-hmm. so that all the resources, including the people that you employ, can go to somebody else's hands who's doing something better with it. Mm-hmm. But now suppose you, suppose you can borrow at minus 2% interest, just to make the math easy. You know, it's not that low in Switzerland yet. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. You can borrow at minus 2%. But suppose you destroy wealth at minus 1%. Mm-hmm. But you can borrow at minus 2%. You actually have a net profit of 1% at the yeah. end of the year positive. Uh, so it is uh-huh. profitable. It becomes profitable to destroy. Uh-huh. And I, I think the, the implications of that cannot be understated because the nature of markets is that if something is profitable to do, mm-hmm. then enterprises will scale it up mm-hmm. and keep scaling and become bigger and bigger and bigger mm-hmm. until it's no longer profitable to do. Now, let's say it's profitable to sell uh, hamburgers um, you know, in a restaurant in the corner. You can only scale that up so far, and then what you find is the more hamburgers you dump onto the bid in that corner, the lower the hamburger price, and the less profitable it becomes to do that. Yeah. And so, in a free market, everything is self-limiting because there's only so much there's only so much buyer. Mm-hmm. But in this case, if the central bank has flooded the market with useless stocks and the interest rate's pathologically negative, then there is no end to the, the ways that you can destroy wealth at a slightly lesser rate than the negative interest that you're getting the, the francs in the first place. It's incredible and insight. So, uh, I, I, I don't think there's very many people that see this. I, I don't, you know, I mean, that's, uh, that's why I wanted to have you on, because to me, when I started reading this, it makes so much sense. But if people aren't indoctrinated, they don't think for themselves, they're all, all the economists at the Fed are Keynesians, they wouldn't, they would have a hard time comprehending this, would they not? I would say, um, from the ones I've met, and I've met a few, um, m- many of them are what you would call monetarists. Uh-huh. Um, and I, monetarists and the Keynesians regard each other as mortal enemies and think they're all the difference in the world. To my perspective, they're pretty similar. Yeah, exactly. No, they, 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 they wouldn't see it this way because they have these equations yeah. that pur- purport to you know, predict the economy. And, and in a way, they sort of fancy themselves physicists. So, you know, you, you have a container and you pump a gas into it and, you know, uh, it was a Boyle's Law, I forget now, PV equals NRT, you know, it's pressure times volume equals a constant times uh, the temperature and something like that. It's mm-hmm. been a while since I've studied that. And, and they think that they can describe an economy in the way a physicist can mm-hmm. describe right. a gas pumped into a container. Right. And, and they can't, you know, for, for a couple of reasons. One is obviously people are, are rational and, and, and think and are creative and have free will. Right. Um, and then number two, people respond to incentives. And these equations don't really recognize incentives. Mm-hmm. So, so, I wrote, I, so, so I wrote this paper in 2015 the first rank will collapse. Um, it got a lot of play in all the usual places that you would expect it to, zero hedge, and the gold community. And in the more mainstream places, it was either ignored or very controversial. And, and you know, you can imagine, I, I took some flack for writing it. Um, but, you know, as with all these things, I just said, okay, do you have a substantive argument? I mean, if you think I'm wrong, tell me where I'm wrong. Don't just wave your hands and don't just sneer at me, you know? Yeah. And I didn't get any of that, uh, of course. And so, you know, I think my argument stands that, yes, if you create the perverse incentives to destroy, people will take you up on it. Mm-hmm. And if people are destroying at any significant scale, 
then, you know, that will eventually lead to, um, you know, collapse. And so in my 2015 paper, I said, look, you can't, it's, I, I can't predict how long it's going to take. Mm-hmm. And so it wouldn't surprise me if it took months. It wouldn't surprise me if it took, you know, a year or years. Mm-hmm. I just don't know. Yeah. But yeah. I think this is pathological. I don't think interest rates are going to return in Switzerland. And they have, I mean, they've kicked up a bit. The whole world interest rates have kicked up since yes. 2016. But it's still negative out to the 10-year bond or 9-year really? bond in Switzerland. Hmm. Uh, the 20-year bond is now positive. Mm-hmm. At the time I wrote that, 20 was negative. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but it, it, the whole thing is drowning. So I published a, a curve in which I made everything below zero red, if, if I recall. It's <laughs> just to, to indicate, like, you're drowning. You're underwater. Yeah, exactly. And you're not, you're not coming back. It's not, it's not the hot thermonuclear explosion of hyperinflation. It's the cold, lonely death of drowning. Right. Okay, uh, Keith. Uh, yeah, Keith, let me ask you this then. We're, we're looking now with rates rising. A lot of people uh, very concerned about the rising interest rates in the United States. The U.S. Treasury now is uh, $22 trillion. So an interest, an increase in the interest rate of 1% increases, you know, what, $220 billion a year for the, for the U.S. debt. Um, the debt keeps getting bigger and bigger the u.s debt uh global debt keeps getting bigger and bigger for reasons i, I guess what you're it's been encouraged to get bigger um for the you know the reasons you've just given that all these central banks have been in, involved in the same pathology of, of printing excess amounts of money um, um how do you see this working out now because you know i mean i i believe that the authorities have already positioned themselves for more negative rates and for um uh, what do you call it? bail-ins the next time we have a global uh, catastrophe, which I, I think, I don't know if you're in agreement with this, but it seems almost not a, a matter of if, but when. How is this thing going to play out? Because what you're describing is a death spiral for the franc. Yeah, a little bit of a reprieve right now with the U.S. leading the way to higher rates, uh, and I think they would like to get back to normal, but can they? And when this thing, if you agree with me that we're going to see another debacle here, another implosion, give, give me your take on how this is going to work out. So that's, um, that's a broad question. But um, so first of all, I think that the, the long-term interest rate trend remains downward. Mm-hmm. That is, we're in, a, we're in a correction, nothing more. And, you know, so I've written a whole theory of interest and prices in a paper currency that um, interested, you know, readers can go to. Uh, but I think maybe the simplest way to describe it is by reference to uh, a couple of things. One, I still see commercials on TV every day, uh, like if I'm at the gym, I'm on the treadmill, I'm captive to whatever they got on the screen. You know, all the major car companies are still offering 0% for either 60 months or 72 months. Mm-hmm. Now, the cost, so that's a subsidy that they're providing to move the iron. The cost of that subsidy has increased very dramatically with the increase in um, interest rates, obviously. So I, I think I wrote an article, it must be six or eight months ago now, that just in back of the envelope mass, the cost of the increase, excuse me, the increase in the cost of that subsidy, so not including whatever the baseline cost was, in 2014, but just simply the increase since 2014, my very rough back of the envelope arithmetic said that that was costing Ford um, either a billion or a billion and a half dollars a year, mm-hmm. the, the increase, and it's gone up since then even more. Now, Ford has a total, had at the time, a total bottom line of like $5 billion, so a significant chunk of their bottom line was eaten up in the increase in interest rate between then and now. So why would Ford be doing that? And it must be a marketing problem if their marketing people look at it and say, 
if we take this away and we tell buyers that from now on, you have to pay, I don't know what it would cost them to break even on, on financing their cars, mm-hmm. but 4.9%. Mm-hmm. If we tell people you have to pay 4.9%, we're going to, sales volume is going to drop off a cliff. Wow. And since we have, um, obviously, high fixed costs, we have all these plants and everything else, union agreements, um, we would lose more money by the loss on volume than we're going to lose by subsidizing the credit. And I like to frame it in terms of relationships like that, because I think that's how economics really works. Right. That if you want to understand whether rates are rising or falling, understand whether every uptick causes an increase in demand for credit, mm-hmm. or whether every uptick, which means more people selling more bonds, and the higher the rate goes, the more people want to sell more bonds. Mm-hmm. That is not the environment we're in today. That was no. the environment of the 1960s and 1970s. Uh-huh. Today we're in an environment where there's very, very soft demand for credit, mm-hmm. except on a downtick in rate. Mm-hmm. So the consumer got used to 0% financing. Well, we also see it in furniture. They sell beds this way. They sell, you know, I'm trying to think what other products I've seen. I think they're even selling like plastic surgery. Mm-hmm. I think I've even seen ads for that, where, you know, come in, do a whole facelift, we'll work you over $20,000, and we'll give you 0% finance wow. for, five, for five years. Right? Um, the consumer really only has demand for credit at 0%. And if you charge them the market rate, all that demand dries up. And so right now, these companies are trying to hold the line, and they continue to, to sell bonds, you know, even at the current market rate. But it has got to be a very lethargic, very sluggish, very trailing kind of demand and so that's that's one way to look at are we in a rising or falling interest rate environment mm-hmm. it's a falling rate environment mm-hmm. um, demand is very sluggish for, for, demand for credit is sluggish except on the downtick yeah. Well, Every it's, time it ticks down, and you get a, a renewed shot of demand. Yeah, it's easy for me to see longer term that uh, to agree with you that I think rates are heading down because when we have another financial crisis, which I think is just I don't know. Do you agree with that? That inevitably, as rates are rising, there's going to be a point where it's you know we're going to have an implosion, a, a financial crisis. Uh, you know, when the when the margin clerks are going to call for their repayment, and you're going to have this sort of cascading domino effect like we had 2008, 2009, do you see that happening? And then we're back to increased negative or, or bigger negative rates in the future. There was, there was a graph published by the Bank for International Settlement in 2015, and it was a graph showing zombie, cor- zombie debt. Mm-hmm. So they define, the Bank for International Settlement defines a zombie corporation as basically a mature company, so it's not a company with like huge upside, like a Netflix, but just a mature you know, industry company whose profits are less than its interest expense. Huh. So in other words, it only exists by, by dint of really low rates and a very forgiving credit market. Because yep. in a normal world, they wouldn't be given credit. They'd be shut off like a drunk at the bar at 3 a.m. Yep. Okay, we're shutting you off. Right. So at that time, um, the percentage of zombie credit to the total corporate bond market was um, I want to say it was, it was over 10%, and the curve was tilted very steeply upwards. It was rising very rapidly. My goodness. Um, in 2015. Now, um, what that means, and so um, that was before interest rates were rising when they produced that, or, or just the first air uptick. Mm-hmm. So that means there's, there's a very large percentage of companies that are marginal. That is, they can barely, they can't really afford to pay their debts, mm-hmm. even when interest rates were, were pegged at zero. Mm-hmm. And now you're going to raise rates. So, so when you raise rates, you're obviously going to bankrupt the marginal debtor. Mm-hmm. And by definition, the marginal debtor is the guy who defaults mm-hmm. when interest rates tick up. Mm-hmm. So that's another way of looking at um, 
uh, are we in a falling trend or a rising trend? The debtors are all, you know, there's a very large percentage of debtors are marginal. And so if you tick up, you're going to destroy them. That is what is, so is the seed, or that is the first seed of the, of the financial crisis, mm-hmm. is that X amount of debt defaults, and now that stresses the creditors. Yes. Because the creditors um, are, are themselves leveraged. Yes. And yeah. using duration mismatch, which makes it even worse, mm-hmm. short-term funding and long-term liability, right. their funding can be pulled very rapidly. Right. And if their debtors are defaulting and they're leveraged, then suddenly that blows a very large hole in their balance sheet. And then the whole thing unravels and everyone says, gee, what's going on? Well, it's, you know, it's the rise in interest rates. So obviously, um, you, well, I shouldn't say obviously. That's not, that's not the correct word. Um, when this happens, then interest rates are going to have to reverse in a hurry if they want to try to stave this off. Now, whether they'll be successful at staving it off is a different thing, but that would be the, mm-hmm. um, that would be the obvious move for the central bank. All right. With just a couple of minutes left, Keith, what's the remedy for this? Now, I know your firm, Monetary Metals, is put together for investors uh, an ability for them to earn a return on gold. Um, you know, the excuse always for not owning gold is, well, you can't get any you can't get any return for gold. So why would you own it? You hold it. It actually costs you money to hold it, so you have a negative return. Why would you want to own the stuff? But your firm is providing a way for people to earn, what, maybe net 2% or so on their gold holdings? Tell us a little bit about that with a couple of minutes left and, and, and how this may be one way that people can protect themselves against this spiraling downward trend of interest rates. Yeah, so the, the interest rate in gold I don't think is subject to manipulation by the central banks, mm-hmm. which is, of course, one of the reasons why they have to hate it. Um, there are many reasons why they hate it, but that's one of them. So we've had, um, so the company is Monetary Metals, we've had um, uh, you know deals ranging between 2% and 3.75% um, net to the investor. That is mm-hmm. gold on gold. So if you have 100 ounces and the interest rate is 3%, at the end of the year, you have 103 ounces. Mm-hmm. Um more broadly, you know, there's a reason why we're doing this, and 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 the answer is there is no way out in the in the paper monetary system. Mm-hmm. It's it's trapped by its own design uh, or its own design flaws, and it's headed on its trajectory, which is down. Mm-hmm. Um, the only way out for for people is we have to build a transition path from the irredeemable paper dollar to gold, and that transition path is the pay, paying of interest. As, as long as gold doesn't earn interest, it can never circulate. It just becomes another speculative asset in mm-hmm. the Fed's casino. So if it's paying interest, then it can circulate and it can perform its, the job that it performed for thousands of years, which is financing productive activity. And so mm-hmm. that's what we're Mm-hmm. That's what we're doing with it. Okay, well, I guess uh, investors then still have to pay taxes on the interest uh, earned, I suppose. Uh, your 100 ounces of gold get you three additional ounces at the end of the year. I suppose that that's up to their tax accountants to deal with that. Uh, but um, anyway, how can people, where should they go to learn more about your programs, Keith? What's the website? Uh, website, that mm-hmm. the website is monetary-metals.com. Monetary-metals.com. All right, Keith. Well, is it really great insights, a very unique way of looking at things. We like to explore new ways of looking at things, and you certainly have provided a lot of food for thought. It certainly makes sense for me, and I'm, I'm thank, very thankful that you could come and spend some time with us today. Thanks for having me on the show, Jay. Next week, though, I want to tell you that Alistair McLeod is with me to discuss his latest article titled, The Credit Cycle is on the Turn, uh, and if we are fortunate, Michael Oliver will be with me again. So uh, until next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. 
Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 